Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Last year, the uncategorizable rock band Deaf Heaven went into Atomic Garden in Palo Alto with longtime producer Jack Shirley to track 10 Years Gone. The live studio album covered eight standouts from the Bay Area Five Pieces back catalogue, from early cuts like Daedalus and Language Games to more experimental recent songs like the 11-minute Glint from 2018's Ordinary Corrupt Human Love. At the end of a decade in which Deaf Heaven had constantly pushed their sound forwards, always pulling from punishing black metal but increasingly folding in shoegaze, post-rock, ambient music and even alternative rock, it was a remarkably natural sounding record. This was a band retelling their story in their own unique language, one that they'd refined and willfully mutated over time. It also left some people, myself included, wondering who else was left to shock. Deaf Heaven had always been controversial among black metal purists, but the critical adulation that followed each of their records, particularly from 2013's Epochal Sunbather onwards, suggested that there were more than enough acolytes in the wider world to compensate for those that Deaf Heaven had pissed off. A gentle nudge forwards wouldn't feel right, but where else could Deaf Heaven go? Infinite Granite, their fifth album, answers that question emphatically. The most obvious change this time around is lead singer George Clark's voice. The incendiary, blood-chilling, alien scream that bled into reverb on past records is almost completely gone, replaced by clean, melancholy vocals that borrow from Tears for Fears and even Chet Baker. And Deaf Heaven have continued to evolve deeper in the mix. Some listeners will hear arena rock, others will hear art rock. Infinite Granite was produced by Justin Melville Johnson, who's also helmed albums by M83, Taken and Sarah, and Paramore. But despite all these radical shifts, Infinite Granite still sounds unmistakably like a Death Heaven album. Expansive, uncompromising, and extreme, even when that doesn't mean heavy. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Clark and Death Heaven's co-founder and guitarist Gary McCoy about the band's first decade, their ability to turn off the critical noise when they need to, and Clark struggles in inventing a new voice from scratch. Thank you very much for joining me on the Fader Interview podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Would you actually mind introducing yourselves very quickly so that uh, listeners know whom is whom? Yeah, this is George. Uh, and I'm Carrie. And we're Deaf Heaven. Congratulations on, on Infinite Granite. It's a real step forward for the band, which is unlikely given how many steps forward you've taken in the past already. It's a it's kind of a remarkable leap. But I wanted to start by talking about last year. You should have spent 2020 touring, celebrating a decade together as a band. And then that was obviously scuppered by the pandemic. How soon after things locked down did you conceive of 10 years gone and decide to release that? Uh, pretty immediately. I remember I was actually out driving uh, through Death Valley and our manager called and we had been anticipating seeing all these tours around us cancel that we would be uh, close behind. And we got the news that everything had to be wiped for the year. And I remember brainstorming pretty immediately, not only because we were worried financially but also because it was such a milestone for us it was an opportunity to give fans a selection of music they haven't often heard us play live and i think the the pressure to show up for them was pretty immediate and we just got the ball rolling quickly everything happened so fast that's that's what i remember most is just very quick reactions 
a lot of musicians tend to release music and then unless they're touring it and having to rehearse it, they just put it to one side and they move forward. Was it a slightly fresh experience to go back to stuff from as far back as a decade ago? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you can go. I would say it was. Usually, uh, I don't think a lot of people in the band really listen to our back catalog at all because you listen to it so much when you're writing and recording it that uh, when you're d and then you play it and all of that stuff. We're well aware of like the the songs that the the true heads want to hear. We definitely can tell what are the, the popular B-sides and that sort of thing. And so we wanted this record to kind of be more oriented towards that around this tour as well. What did going back through that old material and putting it together in this way, what did it tell you about the band that you were and the band that you'd spent 10 years becoming? It was fun to, especially with Jack, have this retrospective um, as we've done all the records with him. The thing that I noticed mostly was how they sounded in the present and how or what we had become in the 10 years, which was faster, more aggressive, smarter with dynamics, smarter with tone, things like that. And so I found that after recording these songs, they all had a lot more teeth and they had a lot more urgency to them. That was fun to see. It was interesting to really see how we've, how we've grown in those ways. So in a sense, it was new Deaf Heaven covering old Deaf Heaven. Yeah, it felt like a facelift, you know? We were bringing our current selves to these, yeah, these younger songs. I thought that was interesting. And and even up to like ordinary stuff, like the live version of Glint, for example, is quite beefier than what's on the record. Were there things in the catalog as you were going back that maybe pleasantly surprised you? There was, like, I remember listening to uh, Day Dallas, going back and listening to it, and then listening to it when we were figuring it out and being surprised by how simple it is, but also how catchy it is. Like, it's weird because it's a song that I wrote that on an acoustic guitar, like in, in a bedroom with GarageBand. And then the demo version came out and it was like beyond my wildest dreams how it sounded. I remember being like, wow, I cannot believe this is how this turned out, this little idea that uh, I had with George. 10 years later or whatever, listening to it and, and rehearsing it with the band, I was like, it's almost kind of like a cute kind of to me at this point where it was like, oh yeah, you know, it's not bad. You know, there's some promise in this. Maybe, maybe I want to like go back to old me like, hey, like you got some, uh, keep, keep at it, you know? <laughs> so these kids are onto something. Going through 10 years of material and then putting it together in this format, did it sort of give you the confidence to try something even more ambitious on a new album, to sort of evolve even faster and more completely than you had on previous albums? I'm not really sure if the 10 years gone specifically was a catalyst for the experimentation in the direction that we went uh, for Infinite Granite. And I only say that because we started Infinite Granite in 2019, but... Certainly when we were planning that tour 
And when we were choosing those bands and we were playing those venues and all that, that that tour before it fell apart, that did feel like a kind of a send off. And I think that were we to have gone through with it, we would have treated it a little bit like that. Not to say that we would never be returning to those songs, but I think that it would have been a more defining moment. Because that didn't happen and and we did the record version instead, the pronouncement wasn't as strong, I think. I mean, we, I think we, we were happy to do it, but I didn't feel by the time we released 10 Years Gone like that, like, okay, like it's done now. In the way that an exhaustive tour would have made one feel. When we're on the road and we're having those kinds of experiences, those feel much more grandiose in a way. And I think that's that's what the feeling we would have gotten would have been. I think if anything, it just sort of strengthened our resolve. It kind of put us in this headspace of being like, yeah, we are doing what we want to do right now. These songs are great and we're having fun with them, but the juice is over here, you know, and, and that's the infinite granite material. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would also second that. While uh, like George mentioned, of course, we'll play old songs. We're never going to not play old songs. Part of the point of that tour was to kind of like book smaller, rowdier venues and take out kind of like both a, a band that we've toured with twice before and our very rowdy dudes and like new Death Wish band. That was kind of like a callback to our roots, sort of. And um, and like like you said, like kind of give this that chapter or whatever of the band sort of like a big like this was awesome like you know we started this band when we were 21 and 22 like now we're this age and like this is kind of cool to do this and we're going to try these other things now when we were recording that the live thing we were very much like oh this is cool but it but just the, the speed with which we were able to record it you know because these are songs that the five of us have played easily 50 times each at least you know so this is no none of these with the exception of day dallas or like some of the really rarer ones so there was no real surprises there and it's well trod material for us and so i think that sort of that again like you said kind of hammered in like we really need to for our own sake we need to kind of like try something new and challenge ourselves again so how how far into the process of, of writing and recording were you when things shut down we were pretty far along. I mean, I, I think that we at least had the first versions of, of a lot of songs. And the plan was that post tour, we were going to work on the record throughout the summer of 2020. And we were still kind of aiming for this fall recording time. But once everything fell through, we really kicked into gear and we didn't want to waste what we saw as kind of an opportunity, e even though things were terrible. You know, we were like, we have to do something it sort of created a spark, a more a more urgent need to delve into the making of this album. Were you able to be together in the same room? We were, yeah. There was a lot of precaution, especially at Jack's studio. He's very cautious. There was a lot of worry. Our bassist lives in Boston. He was traveling long distances. I remember, especially at the beginning, when people didn't know as much uh, in April and May, it was very stressful and we were getting tested as often as possible. And uh, I remember Chris just having like tons of masks on, on his flights and, and like sending us photos and just the whole thing. But, but yes, we made it happen. I think like a lot of other people, it wasn't ideal. And uh, in spite of everything, we, we did really try and be safe. Yeah, I think also being in the same room, there was a couple moments where I remember being like, just from the amount of news or whatever I was reading and seeing the 
the cases go up. I remember kind of just being like, man, there's kind of no way that we're not going to get this. Like we had canceled a couple practices right in March and April. Like the last thing I wanted to do was go to like a punk practice space in Oakland and, you know, be inside a huge, no windows, closed place with a bunch of people. So we canceled that and then we moved it to Kathy's house, our manager. Even then, I remember being like, man, he's going on, Chris is going on this plane and it's from Boston. They're going to pack people in on there. I remember being like, man, there's no way he's not going to get it. And then like I had to go pick him up and I was like, that's it. Like I'm about to get it. Even though it, it freed us up, so to speak, to like work on the record a lot more, that like back of your head kind of fear and the chaos that was going on, like kind of crept into the writing stuff a lot. And you can hear it in, in, a little, in a couple of the songs, I think. There's a little bit of like weird tension, the gnashing especially. that song i mean we were working on the bulk of that song when la went into curfew our manager lives a bit outside the city and it's about a half hour drive back into the city and and uh carrie and i live around downtown and i have to go through downtown to get to my house and i remember all the freeways were stopped off lapd was everywhere there was just like copters and of course because uh because of the the protests between that and like the fires that were happening in the state at the time and LA had this brewing kind of red brownness through like through day to day and the ongoing COVID situation all those things really going into that song the soft kind of practice title was like end of the world because it really felt apocalyptic and that song has that big doomy ending and it and it and the whole thing is kind of dark and driving and i don't think it would have necessarily come out the same way had we not been writing it in that atmosphere george you mentioned elsewhere that a big part of i don't know if it was the genesis of the album but there was a sort of an extended bout of insomnia that, that went into this right yeah, that was happening at the same time. It's funny looking back now because the pandemic is so much more understood at this point. But at the time, yeah, I was like wiping off grocery bags and not leaving my apartment at all. And I had so much wound up energy, not being able to go to the gym, not being able to go outside for a run, like all these things, at least like, you know, in the first couple of months when the information was very thin, out of that developed a ton of insomnia, just nowhere to place that energy, that anxiety. Because we were working on the songs at the same time, I would just stay up and listen to demos and do writing and rewriting and and try and writing melodies and things like that. So a lot of a lot of my kind of homework happened between, say, like two and six. And I think because of that, I was writing a lot in the blue hour. And I think that there's references to blue in essentially every single song. It informed the artwork. The whole thing was kind of informed by this period of, yeah, like restlessness. Yeah, you talked about just even breaking these songs down into syllables because of obviously the, the 
shift in your voice, the way that that's evolved quite quickly, and essentially having to find yourself a, a new voice on this record or a different voice. What was that process like of discovering that new voice and just and breaking songs down into syllables that made more sense for that voice as opposed to the the howl of earlier records? It was a long process. When we were first talking with Justin, it was, of course, the kind of major thing, the major shift that, that we were discussing. And he immediately made me feel very comfortable. He was like, look, we have a year, you know, and we're going to do everything in that year to make this happen. Like, you don't need to worry, just do the steps and we're going to work out a rough schedule and, you know, so on. So as far as personal work goes, yeah, it was listening to a lot of different singers. I wanted to find a way to sing with some strength. A problem that I had with performing kind of shoegaze live was was I, I didn't want to be competing with roaring guitars and having this like softer voice. And, and I found with a lot of bands that I love, the dynamic doesn't always work live. They can't always nail it. The the mix is very difficult to to balance those things out. So initially my thought was like, I need to have a, a voice that is strong enough to compete with the guitars. And so that was like, that was kind of going back to the classics and listening to Nina Simone and listening to Chet Baker, people that have a lot of character and strength in their voice. And the same thing with Tears, Tears for Fears or, or Depeche Mode or, or these kind of stronger singers. Because I knew eventually if we were performing them live, I didn't want that to be a massive hurdle for us where we were needing to like really dial in this delicate vocal over over all the loud live music. So that was a motivation. And then from there, Justin has, um, he has a studio at his house that we, we did the record. He has an isolation booth. And while he was just working on other projects, he would let me come over and I would just stay in the ISO booth and just for hours and just, uh, and I would yell and be, you know, I could be loud in, in ways that I'm unable to in my apartment. I could test ideas out say like the end of Great Massive Color or the end of like Villain, these things that have these more roaring kind of half yells. I was able to develop that in his studio, which was very helpful. And then working with Shiv and Chris and Carrie, I at one point went up to the Bay Area. Shiv and Dan and I worked together. Uh, I remember like for Imbler, a, a ton of that was worked, uh, the three of us. Carrie and I worked together a ton, especially on, like you were saying, like the syllable stuff. Like there's there's a kind of an antidote that I, I keep using was there's um, in the course of other language, there was a lyric that wasn't working and I was being very combative about it. and we all kind of work together to like make that more musical, make that make more sense or lament for wasps. Carrie and I worked in Justin's ISO booth on that course together. So there was a lot of kind of communal group writing in a way that really wasn't available to us on the older records because, because frankly, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's more difficult for 
the guys to have input on on a scream and that kind of thing I can do alone. That in itself made the experience a lot richer and helped me get across the finish line with what I was trying to accomplish, which was not only singing in this new voice, but owning it and trying to create a record that that sounded like a band that had always been doing this. I guess what I'm ultimately trying to say was that it was very thought out. It didn't feel haphazard at all. It was a lot of work. Yeah. You said at one point that you you couldn't be afraid. Was there a point there where you were a little bit afraid of putting yourself out there with something that nobody had ever heard before? Absolutely. It's it's funny you have these feelings in you for so long you say have this voice in you for so long you know we'd been talking about expanding the vocal for a while and in certain ways i had kind of already done it on my own and we had done it together like on near uh, from ordinary or um or night people from ordinary it was like it's always there but but when you start to really put it into practice there is an imposter feeling for sure and there is a out of body feeling where you're like this isn't my identity at all you know even though you've been harboring this internally for a while once you start stepping into it yeah it for me anyway it it felt at times a bit strange it was like using totally new muscles and using a a totally different part of my brain and and the whole thing was so new that there were steps along the way where I felt apprehension. Even less vocally, but more like on the musical side, there were times in the writing process, I remember where we could have easily put in like a double kick or something and maybe did. And then we would stop and kind of, you know, discuss. And it was always my opinion that that we should stay the course and not falter into into our old habits. And and that that went more for me than anything, you know, like don't scream here do what it is that you want to do. And now that you're doing it, keep going. It was so important just to keep going and to exercise that honesty. I think that's the that's the best way I could put it. Kerry, did you feel the same during the writing process? Was there a sort of apprehension? I mean, it's fascinating to hear you talk about like reverting to a double kick and then being like, no, no, wait, this isn't what we're trying to do here. I mean, are those moments scary for you as well? Well, every every record that we put out is scary at some point. When we're working on music, we kind of uh, have this rule where we don't um, allow ourselves or anyone to really ask the question like, geez, what are people gonna think about this? And we had it with New Bermuda when we started adding like kind of more uh, heavier elements or we, we had it with Ordinary when we you know, open the record with a song that starts with piano, you know, like every record we we have the same rule and then the same result ends where we, we write this thing and we just, we're in our bubble. Not even the manager hears it. You know, no one hears it until it's until it's done and we're fully locked in. What what inevitably happens after that is that, you know, we turn the thing in, we show it to the label, we show it to our management, we show it to everybody. And they love it. Everyone's, it, every time so far, at least, people are like all excited about it. And then you've got six months for a final turnaround. And so you've got about four months-ish until uh, you can announce it at some point. And so that's four months for your brain to start thinking, oh my God, what the hell have we done here? And so this is just the same thing, but it's just the stakes went up a little bit higher. So it was a little bit more of that feeling of, you know, we were in the studio writing the stuff and then we were in the studio recording it. 
And the whole time we were just like, man, this fucking rules. Like, I really like this. This is really what we want to be doing right now at this time in, in our in our existence of a band. And then you hear the whole thing. And then like, you know, we would all just listen to it. And we showed Kathy. And then we showed, you know, you know, we showed people and everybody was just like, my God, this is the best thing you guys have ever done, et cetera, et cetera. And then we turned it in, et cetera. And we're waiting since, you know, January up until like uh, June 9th. And we're all just like, wait, is it good? It's good, right? I listened to it again in the car this way. And I think, you know, I think it's good, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm too old now. And I don't know, or, you know, you have these kind of thoughts and, uh, you know, I think we, we can all deal with that in healthier ways these days. And so it's at the end of the day, we all just kind of sat there and be like, I mean, it is what it is. Like we're locked in now. It's like being on the, at the top of a roller coaster and being like, oh, should I go on this? You know, like that, that's, the point is moot at this point. We're, we're going on this ride, whether you like it or not. So, yeah, it was it was kind of that feeling. But there, there were moments of like, wow, this is kind of a crazy thing for us to write as a band. But for better, or for worse, well, this is what we this is the band we are now. So people are going to have to take it or leave it. I was quite surprised going back and reading old interviews with you a while ago. You were talking about sort of being a little bit apprehensive about a new album coming out and trying to shy away from reading reviews which and it surprised me because i've i've always conceived of deaf heaven as a band who whoever they're pissing off they're pissing off somebody and i sort of expected you to be just like inured to it just like completely defiant and just like yeah well you know what some people are gonna hate it is there still this kind of thrill about upending expectations yeah, I mean, that's a great question. A couple things. One is I stopped reading reviews. Well, I'll, I'll, re- I'll read the reviews. I'll read the big reviews that, you know, the ones that, you know, whatever. I stopped reading comments. I stopped reading any of that, that kind of stuff. When Sunday the first happened, or when, even before Sunday, when we did Rose of Judah, and it was our first little glimpse into, like, the wider world as a whole is aware of our existence, it's an exciting thing, especially if you're you know, like we were 22, 23 and you just want to, oh, wow, cool. Like people like this stuff we make. That's cool. I'll read it. You know, wow. You know, and you kind of get into it. And then around Sunbather, I kind of realized that it doesn't really matter either way, even even with reviews, because, you know, as much as I am grateful for the critical love we've been shown, it doesn't mean that it'll happen all the time or not or People are human beings, et cetera, and they have different opinions on things. And that's their job or whatever. But the one thing that I came across is, especially back in the day, in the Sunbather days, there was seemed to be two camps of people who thought that, you know, we were God's gift to music as a whole, and this is this brand new thing that's whatever. And then there are these people that just think, like, the world would be a better place if uh, everyone in the band was aborted or something, you know, just these despicable, like evil things being said about us. I realized kind of that both of these camps are wrong, you know, like we're not the worst thing that ever happened to music. And we're also not like the, you know, we're not the Beatles or whatever. We're just guys who write music and people feel a way about it. And if you connect with it, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, it's just the music we want to make. I guess what I'm getting to is that, after that experience and then going to New Bermuda and, and all these kind of things, I kind of realized like, 
that's none of my business anyway, in a weird way. We do have this kind of bravado of like, you know, when we were in the studio, I remember people being like, wow, like this is going to be crazy that this is a Def Heaven record, you know? And I remember us kind of being around, yeah, you know, it's a Def Heaven record because we say it is and we're Def Heaven and that's what we get to do. But at a certain time, you're also like, you got to live in the world, you know? And like, I'm aware of our previous content and what it sounds like. And I'm I'm aware of the, what people expect when they hear it. And, you know, we still, none of us are millionaires. We got to go hit the road and play this thing and pay our bills and stuff. So you can have the, a little bit of that bravado, but you also, you're lying to yourself if you don't at some level kind of be like, oh God, like, I hope, uh, I hope, I hope they like it. I don't know. I like it. You know, <laughs> I, what do you, what does it say about me? If this is this thing that I've poured two years of my life about into and everyone's like, God, it's a bunch of garbage, you know? People can think what they want. I like this. We, we all are very happy with it. And, uh, you know, if this is the last thing we ever make and we can never play another show again, you know, then at least we were honest with ourselves. second all of that and another misconception has kind of often been that there's an intention to make our audience to to kind of to trick them or to to lead them astray or or to to kind of trick the metal audience at large and and that's never been the case that we end up um kind of subverting expectation i think is a exciting side effect of our of of the music that we make but it's always just been about making things that we are feeling passionate about in the moment and music that is simply just a kind of a reflection of who we are. And yeah, after, after Sunbather, the, and I remember this, especially around Ordinary Corrupt, it was like, I remember like saying it out loud that all we wanted to do was just put our head down and work. And, and I think that we've really, despite, you know, what if some people might think that we're like kind of these like trolls or something, I think that the only thing that we've ever really wanted to do and have done is just put our head down and, and work and, and tour and try and make things that are interesting to us and thankful for the people that connect with it. I was thinking about the, the sort of semantics of your roots in what would be called extreme music, extreme metal. And you know, bringing in Justin to work on this record, some of the influences that you were talking about here. I mean, Justin produced the, the Paramore record 2017, After Laughter, which is one of the more, even for by Paramore standards, that was sonically diverse for, for them. I sort of wonder if there's something about Death Heaven that is constantly working in extremes. That yes, there's extreme metal on, on the one side of it, but there's a maximalism to this record that there's absolutely no sense of, okay, well, we should pull it back here a little bit. If you're going to do melodies, you're going to do, you're really going to do melodies. 
It feels so good to hear you say that uh, because I completely agree. And that has been with us since bringing in the just in question. Will this guy work with us? And do we want to work with him? And why do we want to work with him? And 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 that maximalism was a huge factor. And I've said this a couple of times, but I'll, I'll say it again. There was a real, for me anyway, there was a real intention to replace the speed and metallic heft of our older records with density and hooks and and real interlocking melody for for this record and um because we we didn't want anything to feel lacking we wanted it to feel grandiose we knew that he was capable of making that sound you know the record that i was listening to mostly from his catalog while we were working together was m83's junk it has so much variety there's so much on that record that's bombastic and unafraid and I wanted to take that and apply it to our sound. And I think we definitely did that, not only working with him, but Shiv and Carrie really stepped it up with creative guitar playing. I think that this is such a guitar-centric album. I think that there's so many great textures and, and elements that, that they bring to it. And, and yeah, it was definitely thought about and and I, I was hoping that that was something that we would achieve the way that it seems like this band has worked for the past decade has been that you've gained confidence with each album with each album you work a little bit more cohesively as a unit you understand each other better as musicians yeah but also as people and therefore you sort of feel free to channel every possible influence into your work that as a unit you you don't need to push anything away are there things that you listen to now that you still haven't quite managed to fold into the Deaf Heaven sound? Are there things that right now are beyond even Deaf Heaven? Yeah, we made an attempt on this record to, it's not on the record, but at one point we were tossing around the idea of throwing like an early DJ Shadow or like the first uh, Uncle record, uh, kind of Boards of Canada-y kind of vibe in it. Um, it's something that I, I listen to kind of that kind of stuff a lot. You know, I've, I'm sure it, it's not hard to see maybe like a bit, a little bit of a Portis head or massive attack influence in the band, but there's a lot of stuff that I, I'm interested in. And I, Shiv is interested, George is interested, et cetera, like the Moax label stuff. And yeah, kind of just like early warp records where we were going to tr kind of try and like kind of throw again, sort of like airbag from okay computer, you know, kind of, ape like a dj shadow kind of thing and it didn't quite fit it didn't quite get in there and it kind of wound up being for the best there's a few lanes still left to explore i think for us and i think it, i i i hope that we have that for for our uh the remainder of the band that there's always something another flavor we can try you know i i think that's what's uh best about being a creative person yeah that was definitely that more like laid back break beat kind of trip hop influence that we did toy with quite a bit but but didn't necessarily land on this album i would say that and like like you know like 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 mary latmore or something that's like quite a bit like orchestral and kind of bringing in more of those auxiliary instruments into the fold that's something that we've yet to do even like strings or or what have you we've we've never really gone that way for no no particular reason like carrie said I, I think there's always something that is that is really keeping us interested and and there's always something to bring into the fold and there's always something to to try out and and i think we have kind of positioned ourselves in a way that we're that we're able to hopefully we'll just 
continue experimenting and continue growing and doing the thing. That's really exciting. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks, man. These are great questions. Hey, we really enjoyed it. Thank you, man. That was Death Heaven in conversation with The Fader. Death Heaven's new album, Infinite Granite, is out on Friday, August 20, via Sergeant House. Our engineer is Tony Giambroni, and our associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. Remember to follow The Fader interview wherever you listen to podcasts, and keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader interview. Goodbye until then.